about that mostly as what we talk about today. And I had an email from Susan, who's here, who you recognize, who's here a lot, who wanted to show you her book and tell you when she's going to be presenting it in the Bay Area, and hopeful that you'll come. So you'll tell about it. I can tell about it, so I guess I should stand because people won't see me. So um, I just had a book come out called My Mama Earth, which is an Earth Day and mother-child book uh, with Barefoot Books. I don't know if you know Barefoot Books. They do lovely books. And I was just in New York uh, presenting in Boston um, last week on my um, little East Coast part of the tour. And I'm going to be doing my West Coast launch um, at Book Passage on April 21st, which is the day before Earth Day at 10 a.m. So if you have kids or grandkids and you want to bring them, it's free. Um, and it just got awarded yesterday. This you don't know, Sylvia. Um, got an award for um, Top Green Toy of 2012 <laughs> <laughs> by Education.com. So I have just a few postcards if you actually think you're going you know, to bring kids and you want. I'm doing a bunch of events in the Bay Area, South Bay, East Bay, City. So if you don't live in London and you want to come to something else. Um, and I did have the music. We have music that goes with it. But it becomes a presentation. You'll see it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the 21st. Saturday the 21st at 10 a.m. How many weeks from this Saturday is it's it? a week from this Saturday. A week from this Saturday. And right here in Book Passage. Well, good for you. Oh, thank you. Sure, absolutely. Pass it around. I'm sorry, it's in the bookstore already, yeah. Uh -huh. And I dress up as Mama Earth and do a whole puppet. I've been a teacher for 20 years, so I do the whole shtick. You always dress great. Your necklace is gorgeous. <laughs> Good luck with it, Susan. Okay. We're we'll to start. Okay. Okay. This is where we'll start. Well, we'll start with a we'll, we'll start with a another cartoon. Actually, a cartoon by that same artist. This one I did bring. And it is in the Shambhala Sun. Uh, and it's a, you probably can't see it from there, but the, the, the picture is uh, two women walking down an urban street. Uh, contemporary women walking down an urban street could be a Berkeley street. And each of them are carrying a, uh, a yoga mat rolled up. And uh, one of them is saying to the other, between yoga, Pilates, therapy, massage, and meditation, I hardly have any time for myself. <laughs> so, in, uh, so. <laughs> it's a great cartoon, but it's very funny. <laughs> it surprises you, doesn't it? And actually, I think that the really the hidden meaning in that whole thing is that all of those things are really designed so that you won't have time for yourself in the sense of your self-centered self, you know, that the self that thinks you're separate from other people. And that's always so confusing to people that um, separate and non-separate from other people because on the level of duality, 
we each go home to our own houses, and it's good if we remember our own phone numbers and our own partners. It works out better <laughs> that way if we remember all of those things. But on, on the level of really uh, recognizing that we are all of us somehow, um, our mystics call it waves in an ocean. We arise, we're there for a while, each wave is a little bit different, but on some level, we really are connected to each other in the sense of being manifestations of consciousness in each of these extraordinary and unique ways that have, in addition to different shape and form, each of us, we have the ability, we, have, we, we come somehow uh, with a mind that, uh, that imagines that it has a permanent eye in the middle of it. It's not that there isn't a personality in, uh, that's part of this mind-body that's not unique, or even a laugh that's not unique, you know. Uh, when I go back to a college reunion, people say, you sound just the same as you did 50 years ago. So uh, there's something about this whole mind-body uh, formation that is unique, but the fact, the idea that there's something about it that never changes, that endures, was the great insight of the Buddha. Was that uh, was one of the great insights of the three insights? Everything is in permanent suffering. Is what happens when there is clinging in the mind, when the mind uh, resists the truth of its experience. And fundamentally, that there's no one who owns this experience. That uh, you think, well, you know, who is hearing? Hearing is happening, the Buddha would say. Seeing is happening. Tasting is happening. Intention is happening. If I go to a yoga class and the, ins the, the, ins the instruction, uh, raise your arms over your head, falls on my ears, these arms go up over my head. You say, well, who raised the arms? Well, you could say raising the arms happened because the instruction fell into the into the neurology, and neurology that's been trained to follow instructions. So, way arms got raised. You say, well, what's the big deal about whether there is someone there or there's not someone there? It certainly feels like there's someone in there. And it's not about uh, not feeling like that, you know, that, all, that uh, we live in duality. It makes a difference to me if I hear on the news that some terrible event happened in um, in Bakersfield, I think, uh, in a neighbor in a suburban neighborhood, and I think, oh, that's really bad. But it'd be different if I heard that a terrible event happened in Green Bay. You know, that I, then I really would feel whoa, that uh, because I'm strung that way, because our neurology is that way, because we're wired that way. And so we're wired to be protective of, our, of this body, even though it doesn't have an owner. We're wired to be protective of kin. But we have the potential also to, with that wiring, uh, live in the world as if we recognize that everybody else in the world is just like us, our extended family, 
and that we're connected to them. And not only that, that, that we're connected to them, but that the awareness of that larger connection is companioning, keeps us company. We don't feel so lonely or so isolated. And that the practice of the precepts and the, pra- the development of the paramis, things, the virtues of the heart that have other people in mind, really liberate the mind from its preoccupation with self. We're not supposed to forget to take care of this. It's good to take good care of this body for as long as it's here. It's, uh, I just remember, you know, I'm remembering, um, it's hard to stay parochial. St. Francis saying, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. You know, that here we are, an instrument that, that moves around in this plane of existence and makes a difference. Every single thing that we do makes a difference. There have been times in my life when I have suddenly realized that uh, uh, the long-reaching uh, sequelae of anything that I do, I, I'll, I'll remember something that I did was I was a young woman that I don't feel so proud of now. And my mind jars about it. says, ah, really, you know, remember it till now. It didn't finish, you know that I'm shaped by something that happened a long time ago, that somebody else is shaped by something that I said a long time ago. Can you remember a thing that someone told you that made you feel bad? How old is the oldest memory you have of something that someone told you that made you feel bad? Fifth grade. Fifth grade? Five years old. Five years old. Four, six. six. I think people usually remember from as from the beginning of conceptual thinking. Four or five or six. Somebody said something derogatory or chastising in some way, and we remember it. And we even though it's not in our moment-to-moment mind, it shapes the kind of person that we are in our life. And I think about liberating the mind from suffering, which we're talking about all the time. I think about liberating my mind from all of the messages that it got that weren't true or that weren't necessary. What if somebody said, you can't carry a tune, don't sing? You know? I, 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 you know <laughs> those are not necessarily they will not follow. You cannot carry a tune and sing. You know, why say that to people? How many people got told not to just to move them, you know, to move your lips but not to... They used to do that. Move your lips but don't make sound. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. Uh, How many people had their teachers tell their parents that they were not working up to their ability? That used to be another thing that people said. Did that help you a lot? I never felt any better. Getting a low grade never inspired me to do any better. You know, if I were getting a bad grade in a course in college, I would drop it and take another course. It did not inspire me to do better. But if I was getting a pretty good grade and people were saying, you can do it, I did better. I made an effort. People, a long-term sequelae. I would make, these are fairly small things, they don't shape our whole life, but 
to think about the sequelae of, I, at some point in my own practice, I, I became kind of I, really overwhelmed with that every single thing that you do makes a difference. And then I began to really listen to what I said to people, and particularly my children, or my, my husband, or my, my family, or whatever, my friends, you know, maybe, maybe they'll feel this or that, don't say this, don't say that. And there was a period of time that I was quite tense about that. And then I realized, I thought to myself, well, you know, you can't do anything, because you never know. <laughs> you know, you might say something with a good intention. I've said things with good intention that hurt people's feelings, because it wasn't the right time to say it. And he said, well, you shouldn't do anything. But not doing anything is also acting in the world. So that does something. And it, it became clear, and it remains clear to me, that the only thing I can do is be paying attention to my intention all the time. I won't get it right all the time. But not in order to be a perfect person or in order to get uh, you know, like badges from, like in Girl Scouts, but in order for me to be happy. This morning was the day in which we did um, precept renewal from 8 to 9. So any, any month on the second Wednesday, if you come, you'll recite the precepts. Uh, and we thought about them. Uh, we, we, we take them slowly, we think about them, meditate on them. And then we share a little bit about what, how we feel about them afterwards, which always is very inspiring for me. I learn different things. Mostly, I think I learned about how much we're, we really want all of us to do the right thing. I, it makes me feel good to think that human beings are noble in that way. I think it's mostly true. It was Anwar Lindbergh who said, I do not believe that sheer suffering teaches if suffering alone taught, all the world would be wise, because everyone suffers. To suffering must be added compassion, understanding, patience, love, honesty, and the willingness to remain vulnerable. So I think about that. Um, that was Anne-Marie Lindbergh. Uh, I have a friend who sends little... Um, statements by, by sometimes people who surprise you. One this week came and said, it doesn't matter the circumstances of what happens to you. It matters that your mind receives them with graciousness and tolerance. So who do you think said that? It's not much of a hint because it's just a true thing. Could have been anybody. In this particular instance, it was Martha Washington. So, you know, which is what I mean, that shouldn't be so surprising, why not? <laughs> it really is the, the, the spaciousness and the graciousness of the mind receiving what happens. So if I thought about how that, when I read that um, Anne Marlinberg quote to... Um, to suffering must be added compassion, understanding, patience, love, honesty, the willingness to remain vulnerable. I thought that sounded like almost like a list of the paramis, of the qualities of the heart that are part of what the Buddha has said to have perfected. I thought, well, here was, here was the Buddha, and the paradigmatic story of the Buddha um, 
of having been raised in a situation in which he did not experience any suffering. And then he had his visions of uh, uh, whether he had them through uh, inner illuminated visions of old age, sickness, and death, or whether it's actually literally true that he had lived in a protected environment and went out and saw what's going on in the world and saw an old person and a sick person and a dead person and a monk. But either way, uh, that vision of suffering, which is then uh, elaborated as he decided he needed to leave his life and go out and discover the cause and the end of suffering. And here is Anne Lindbergh saying, it's not just seeing suffering. You have to have all that other uh, qualities of the heart in place to impel you to go out for the benefit of all beings, to find the end of suffering. So I thought about in the stories, in the legends about the Buddha, there, first of all, the stories of him being a very uh, well-loved and well-accepted prince, that his family was very happy that, that he was born. Uh, I, uh, I'm often amused when I read the account of his father uh, having the news from a soothsayer that the new baby was either going to be a great spiritual leader or a great prince, and that he decided to protect him from seeing the woes of existential life because he wanted him to be a great prince. It's like uh, parents wanting their child to go into their own profession and that uh, certainly not a religious or spiritual leader. Don't do that. So. <laughs> but uh, so his parents took very good care of him, which I think leads to uh, the development in people of a sense of kindness and compassion, the ability to, be, to notice other people, to feel relaxed, to feel safe in the world which is what's required in order to notice that there are people out there suffering. We need to feel safe ourselves. The line in the Metta Sutta that seems to me the most, um, the most important line, they're all important, and uh, those of you who are here enough to, to hear me talk about that sutta because I love it so much, so much, uh, know both that I'm prepared to say every single line in the Metta Sutta is important and uh, seems to me like an instruction. And the key words, I think, are wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. That the requirements to be able to look out for other people and to, have, and to, and to wish for other people without hesitation, may all beings be at ease depends on feeling in one's own mind glad and safe. And those lines come about 12 or 13 lines down into the sutta, and they come after a list of instructions of how to behave. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, um, Contented and easily satisfied, <laughs> unburdened by duties, and frugal in their ways. Let them not do 
the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. And I love that. I think that's that 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 uh, more and more. It has moved in my mind from being the preliminary practice. Let's get the ethics. Uh, let's get the ethics installed, and then we'll be able to uh, uh, practice the mind discipline of changing the mind habits of putting people out of your heart or the mind habits that cause suffering because they cater to a self that needs. Before all of the, the instructions for mental discipline, that what needs to happen is that, 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 that those um, virtues need to be firmly installed. When we took the, the precepts this morning, when we recited them, Uh, Marty said. Uh, Marty said afterwards when we were discussing them, and I and I had said, "What did you feel when we were taking that?" And I said, "Well, I have to write down what you said." She said, "I think they all sound like not causing any harm anywhere by interjecting myself into a situation in a jarring way, and because I was thinking of talking about this issue of the self." Not the self that's my personality or the self that has my particular uh, skills or uh, the, the self that looks like me, but uh, the self that's preoccupied with my story, the self that's forgotten that there's a, a world out here full of people, other beings that I could be in heartfelt contact with and to the degree that I was in heartfelt contact, that I, that I, I, I feel my connection to the world at least as much, or for as much of the time as I can, as I do to myself. You know, I like to tell people I have this, um, I have a vision of my mind being like the big televisions and sports bars with, uh, with uh, uh, remote controls where you can see the Army-Navy game up here, and with a click, you can see the Notre Dame-USC game in a small box over here. <laughs> and my mind is the same. I can be looking out and seeing the whole world and being amazed by it and inspired by it. Did you notice the turkeys this morning? <laughs> Who could not made a turkey? You know, or designed one in a, you know, in a design way. I mean, that's so absurd. Can hardly, they can hardly walk around. But, you know, that you look at that and you think, wow, creation is amazing. And look at it. And you can look at that big screen and you can see creation is amazing. This world has enough resources to cause everybody to have enough to eat. And we could have clean water and clean air well, if we were doing it differently. It's an amazing thing, this planet in the middle of everything. And it's so painful how suffering is corrupting it and, and, and causing such pain in people's lives. But I could look at that and I could be inspired by the possibility. I could be inspired by the depth of suffering. I could devote myself, as one does when one takes uh, vows, to, but to devote one's life to the benefit of all beings. I could do that, and whether, whether the, the, uh, the, the degree of 
difference between the magnificence and the suffering was decreased or not, at least I would have lived my life in that, uh, in that exciting connection. Or I could get stuck in this little story over here of Sylvia Face's life and what's going on over here. So in that story, I need to pay attention to it. My grandmother listened, used to listen to a radio a soap opera in the 1940s called Portia Faces Life. I don't know who, anybody here remembers Portia Faces Life? You remember that, Barbara? Portia Faces Life. Um, I, I used to listen to it, and I think, well, that, that means Portia Faces Life. But now I see, because it's Sylvia Faces Life. But I, and sometimes I need to look at Sylvia Faces Life, because it's funny to do to take care in that little life story, and I'm directly involved in it, I can directly make a difference. But if I live only here, and I'm only worried about Sylvia and her life and her people's lives, I'm so diminished, and I'm so open to the possibility of suffering, because everybody has suffering. If I share this world with everybody else, I see the suffering, but we carry it together. And at least I'm part of the community of people who are involved with trying to make it better and, and that we know we are. I said this morning when we were taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha that I think to myself, in, it, in its original way, that meaning of Sangha was uh, the community of ordained monks and nuns. And I think about Sangha as uh, my community at Spirit Rock, those of us who are here today, those who come when I'm not here, those who are uh, supportive of Spirit Rock. But beyond that, everybody everywhere who's doing a life and trying to make this world better in all the tremendous and wonderful ways that people are doing, they're all my sangha, whether or not they know it, and my family that are directly involved in, in, in with me taking care of each other. And to the degree of that when I feel connected, I feel, um, I feel vital. I think it's how we feel alive. And when I feel disconnected, then I suffer. I, I find myself saying to people when they say, particularly at the end of retreats, um, uh, What's your practice? And I was just teaching for a month. Uh, what's your daily practice? And I think, you know, and I, I try to answer it in the best way I can, but mostly people are thinking of practice in terms of how much do you sit, how much do you walk, how much do you, how much yoga and Pilates and <laughs> <laughs> therapy and um, this and that do you do? Uh, I would add to that how much parenting, how much partnering, how much grandparenting, uh, how much studying, uh, how much a lot of things, how much serving, how much teaching. But the whole of one's life, uh, my sense of it is not what's the thing that I'm doing, but what's the point of what I'm doing, and towards what end. Um, I just found on my bookshelves this week again uh, the book um, Dharma Road by Brian Haycock. I started to read it again because I've given it to some of my grandchildren. It's so fun. 
he wrote it in the idiom of taxi driving because he was a Zen student and a taxi driver in Austin, Texas when he wrote it. And the first chapter, and it's in the idiom of taxi, and he begins by saying, um, the first thing I say when people get into my taxi is, where would you like to go? Because that's the most important question. And it's really the most important question, not only when you get into a taxi, but all of the time, where do you want to go? And is what you're doing going to get you there? Uh, is this good for me or not? Is this, is this making things clearer for me or not? Oh, here's another one of my great quotes. I know I haven't told it to you because I learned it while I was on that retreat. Um, wait, wait, wait. It was Benjamin Franklin who said, whose habit when he met people that he hadn't seen in a while, instead of saying hello, he would say, what has become clear to you since last we've met? Is that great? Is that great? Like, I would like to come in, maybe, you know, we haven't seen each other for a month, you could say, what has become clear to you since last we met? Or I could say that to you. I would say probably it's become clear to me since last we met, among other things, that the precepts are really the beginning and end of the path, uh, that, uh, that practicing them is not a preparation for meditation. It's an aid to uh, working with one's mind and changing one's habits, because one's mind is more steady if it's not turmoiled up with regret and remorse and guilt. But really practicing the precepts is practicing mindfulness, practicing intention, because if you're going to do them, not by rote, but uh, with the intention of manifesting with clarity of mind and heart, moment to moment, what's the right thing to do here? And that if we were managing, you know, we often think of the, uh, of the equation of practice of, um, uh, uh, as, as in, uh, when we talk about meditation, we say, okay, we get our life in order so we can meditate, so we can have insights, so wisdom can accrue, and as a result of wisdom, we'll have a clear view of the really suffering <coughs> that's part of everyone's life. Just even in a, in a regular life without uh, unexpected things, just the living and the dying, we have a view of suffering and our hearts will be moved to respond with kindness and compassion which are really inherent in each of the paramis. They are really kindness towards other people and oneself. We'll be moved to that and we'll manifest them. So we could just practice them as if we already had all that wisdom and we're here and manifested them. And the very practice would cause those same insights about the suffering of the world to become apparent to us and to keep cultivating and reinforcing our intention to be that way. Does that make sense to you? They can go forward and backwards. You could start here and come out that way, or you could start with the practice as if you were enlightened, as if you already saw it. Why not? And then uh, discover, really, how, uh, for instance, the Buddha said, the bliss of blamelessness 
How pleasurable is really knowing that you've served other people? How pleasurable. I, I said this earlier. I'm not sure I said it after 9 or before 9. That when my grandfather was very, very old, uh, coming on to 100 before he died, sound of mind, um, uh, he said, uh, when I'm gone, there's not going to be anyone who can say bad on me. And that gave him a lot of pleasure to know that. I, thought about, I didn't think about it at the time. Aha, he has a bliss of blamelessness. Uh, but later on, I began to think about that and how much pleasure that gave him at that time. I did not leave troubles in the world. So I wanted to do a little meditation with you. This meditation is, uh, I'm considering it a gift to me and to you because it came in my email this week. It came from, um, it came from Gene Smith. Gene Smith is a longtime meditator. Um, she uh, uh, lives in, uh, she lives in another state and wrote to me about being on retreat and that it had come to her uh, about the importance of cultivating the paramis. And that she had, let me see if I can read it from, uh, read her. Um. <laughs> okay. She, said, she, she precedes this by saying, She's gone on this retreat with her long-term partner, who is at this point quite ill and physically um, limited. So that they went on retreat together because the circumstances of that particular retreat setting was such that would accommodate the two of them coming together and her being able to care for her partner. Uh, she said, uh, <coughs> since uh, I knew that with this kind of situation where I was both on retreat but needing to do a lot of care of my partner, that um, I wouldn't be doing the kind of practice of, of sitting quietly for long periods of time, of contemplative practice, that a lot of my practice would be taking care of my partner. She said, so I, fi I designed... Um, a retreat for myself, essentially combining metta with the paramis. And that she worked that out with her teacher. And uh, then she goes on to tell me how it worked out. But she tells me uh, at the bottom what, how she did her parami retreat. So I want to preface this by just uh, reminding everybody about... Uh, loving-kindness practice. How many people have ever gone on a loving-kindness retreat? Some. Know about loving-kindness practice? Some. In loving-kindness practice, instead of just sit just, instead of receiving the moment just as it is, uh, cultivating stillness, cultivating an interior silence, waiting for moments to present themselves in the body and the mind and noticing them and accepting them, receiving them with a kind of equanimity and interest and uh, warm, cordial reception. Instead of just meeting the moment, 
The moment in, in loving-kindness practice, the moment is conditioned. It's conditioned with um, uh, a hope of... Um, uh, it's conditioned with goodwill. The way it's classically practiced is um, to greet the moment as a friend, to greet the moment... Well, I, I think of it that way. I think of... Uh, May I meet this moment fully, and may I meet it as a friend. Meeting the moment fully is really what I think of mindfulness practice. Meeting it as a friend is a kind of graciousness that loving-kindness practice adds. And what it does classically, the formula for loving-kindness practice, is one recites particular sentences that um, incline the mind in the direction of goodwill. So... um, uh, traditional phrases might be may I or may you thinking about somebody else or thinking about oneself may I feel safe may I feel content may I feel strong may I live with ease may I feel safe may I feel content may I feel strong may I live with ease If I say them to myself, I say them slower than that. I try to feel really the intention of that. And I try to recreate in my body how they feel. May I feel safe. I try to really, that the safe will echo in my body. May I feel content. It's a different feeling. May I feel strong. That's a different feeling. I do say may I live with ease, mostly because I got taught that by my teachers, and it seems like a nice fourth line to say. It's a more cerebral line, may I live with ease, but I don't feel that so much in my body, but I have a sense of what that means. And when one practices that over and over and over again, not just once, but over and over and over and over again, It has uh, the effect of relaxing the mind, focusing the attention, which is what all concentration practices do, Uh, just the same thing over and over and over again. And it also has the effect of inclining the mind particularly towards goodwill. And as it does that, it really unearths for the mind um, those areas of hesitation Uh, or um, those areas in which safety maybe isn't so easy for me. It's an instructive practice. It's not not a hypnotic practice. It's actually uh, a practice that for me has always been full of insight. Where does my mind wish that fully? Where does it balk? What are the barriers to my mind wishing that to myself? Are there barriers to my mind wishing that to myself? fully and wholeheartedly. So that's, that's, uh, that's a, 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 a beginning. What Jean has done is uh, she said that she worked out uh, integrating those phrase, these three phrases, her usual phrases, may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, may I be peaceful and happy, may I be healthy and strong. And after that, so she might say those over and over, after that, she has ten intentions, may I, and the intentions 
mirror each of the paramis. And what I'd like to do is, um, if you're up for it, is I'd like to read them slowly to you as a meditation. And I'll read them. I'll be quiet. You say this intention to yourself in your mind. And I'll leave you a minute, maybe, in between for it to resonate in your mind and see how you feel about it. Is that all right? I'll do that. <coughs> Sit in a way that's comfortable for you. May I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. be peaceful and happy. May I be healthy and strong. May my heart be open to receive and to give with joy and ease. May I renounce and let go of anything that does not lead to liberation and compassion for all beings. With discernment and insight, may I make choices that lead to compassion and liberation.
May I awaken and sustain the paramis in my life with ease. May I be patient and forgiving when self-centered fear or anger arises, accepting things just as they are. May I be truthful with myself so that there's harmony between what I say, what I do, and who I am. May I resolve to practice for my deepest liberation. May cultivating metta practice concentrate my mind and open my heart.
balanced in body, heart, and mind, may I be non-reactive to what arises and passes away. What did you think? Did you like that? Were they each of them different? What, Barbara? Well, the one that resonated the most with me was the synchronicity of what I say and do and be. Who I am. The, who I really am. I think maybe I struggle with that a lot. Do you know which parami that was put out to be? That parami of truthfulness. Truth, that word. Truthfulness. Was that was it. Authenticity. May I say, well, may what I say and what I do be who I am. Yeah. Yeah, I like the one about um, being, being compassionate when you have self-centered anger or fear. Because what I've been thinking about all all morning was that, you know, I think it's relatively easier to control your thoughts. It's relatively easier to change your thoughts and move your thoughts away from something you don't want to think about. But emotions is a whole different ballgame. And if you're feeling, you know, fear about a diagnosis or disappointment about... It could be something minor, like where you're sitting on the airplane, or you know, or, or your uh, anger at something someone said to you. It's a visceral reaction, and it's mm -hmm. you know. And I just I'm thinking, how does one <coughs> distance oneself from that? You can't. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, at least I can't. And so you're left with this, and then you're feeling like I shouldn't, I don't want to feel this way. Mm -hmm. But I can't help it. Mm -hmm. Then what do you do? I think, I think as you pointed out, that may I be patient and forgiving when self-centered fear or anger arises, accepting things just as they are. I think you're quite right. Remind me your name. Debbie. Debbie. I think you're quite right. Don't you think that just like we don't decide to have a thought, we don't think I'll think this now, we don't decide to have an emotion. Something happens. And it comes up. We get frightened. We get angry. Sometimes at big things. Sometimes at which seat me a plane or something else. Or, uh, and sometimes I, I think it's an important thing that as long as we're alive and we have nervous systems, 
it's hard for me to imagine not responding to things that happen. And what I hope for myself is not that I'll stop responding, but that I'll be patient, that I won't, that I won't compound what happens uh, by any unwise behavior. And I won't compound it by giving myself grief about the fact that I had it. You know, that, that I, I think something, maybe all of a sudden I have some ignoble thought about somebody. Um, and I think, well, that wasn't nice. And you're a spiritual teacher and devoted to all my well-beings be free. And you just thought that. Or, I, or that I feel angry with somebody. Or, or, or envious or jealous. Through all these years of spiritual practice, what good did it do you? I think what, it do, I think what good it's done me is that I've, be, I've, I've become quite humble about what it is to be a human being and, and have a life happen and, and need to respond to it all the time and, and, and respond to it not only with wise response to other people but a wise response to myself. Not giving myself grief. What was that quote that you said came from Martha Washington? Could you, you know, it was something about accepting with grace, whatever. Well, how about accepting with grace whatever emanates from yourself? I think that's just, I think that's more or less it. I think that's what Jean means by be patient, forgiving one's self-centered fear right. and anger. Say, whoa, look what happens with me, you know. Uh, and I, I think that we, uh, I may have thought, or maybe we thought, or collectively we imagined that if we meditated enough, it wouldn't happen anymore. <laughs> but at the same time that I thought that, I erroneously thought that wouldn't happen, I also hoped it wouldn't happen, because you know, I, was, I, I, I didn't like the idea that no appetite whatsoever would arise in me, and... Uh, or that I would be uh, emotionless, everything would be, mm, you know, that uh, I, I just don't think, I think we're strong to have emotions, and that having them and knowing how it feels to feel hurt is really the, the, the basis of our being able to be empathic with other people when they're in pain. Uh, I know this is maybe, uh, I, 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 I was toying with saying this. I got a, I got a, a nasty email this week. Uh, I don't want to say it because it's like such an unpleasant thing. But, you know, if you have a, a, a spirit rock mailbox, um, sometimes you get really a, an unpleasant piece of mail. And the um, spirit rock just forwards them to me. They don't read them if emails come. And I read an email that was really very disparaging of me, you know, and in a kind of poorly spelled way, you know, that, you, that actually I knew as I read it that the person who wrote it wasn't well. Um, and I had a moment of feeling, this is terrible. And I felt actually about... It, it, I re, uh, what I learned from it is I, I realized how bruising it is to have somebody speak unkindly or harshly, even you don't know them. Uh, and then I, 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 uh, I thought to myself, I thought I would give it as an example, and I thought, no, it's so unpleasant. But now that the, I, what I ultimately did, which I think really 
took care of it for myself, is I thought, this person is so unhappy. They're suffering so much, you know, that, uh, you know, I certainly wish that they hadn't sent me that note, but they're really, they're so unhappy. And actually it keeps me from feeling awe about them. So I'm, um, you know, I threw it away. I don't need it. I don't need to tell anybody about it. I don't need to respond to it. But um, I think to remember about how much uh, uh, when, when somebody does something that, like that, and, ah, wow. And when I do it as well, you know, I get mad. It doesn't feel good if I get mad or if I get mad in response to something. All of those aversive negative feelings. Um, you know, one of, one of my friends tells a really sweet story about uh, Mahagosananda, who's now died in the last few years. We got to be old. You know, I, I, I got to meet him when he was really old. He was a uh, Cambodian. Uh, he was a senior prelate in Cambodia and uh, had been in his life uh, he was very learned, certainly articulate in seven or eight languages, seriously in English and in uh, uh, Cambodian and probably Thai and Lao and uh, certainly French and uh, maybe German, but very, very learned and had had a lifetime of experiences. My friend went to a conference and uh, she said, yes, Marco Sinanda was there. Uh, but he didn't say very much. All he said was, may all beings be peaceful and happy. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And, but he, and he seemed to be engaged. He seemed to be listening. In the very end of his life, I know he was losing his memory quite a lot, but this was before he lost his memory. I was still having conversations with him at that time. And I thought, I'd like to have a mind that didn't say much other than may all beings be peaceful and happy. <laughs> And come to the end of suffering. I'd be in a good shape if I, if you know, if that was, if that was the last thing I said in this lifetime. May all beings be peaceful and happy, and come to the end of suffering. That'd be an alright thing. And um, that thing about may I be patient and forgiving with myself. Why not? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in another country yesterday, and uh, the, the, the connection was really bad. Uh, but first her salah went out, then my salah went out, so we kept having to call each other back and forth. And at one point, uh, <laughs> at one point, I could tell that she that the, my satellite wasn't working. I guess because she couldn't hear me. So she, uh, and she we were getting a little exact. She was getting exasperated. She said an expletive, but thinking I was cut off and didn't hear her say the expletive. <laughs> and then she called again. I did not tell her about the expletive. She doesn't have to know. <laughs> It happens to all of us. You didn't sell an expert in the last year. Anybody here in the last year didn't sell. My life is peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. We won't say the expert while we As I've been noticing my thinking more and my practice, I've been encouraged to just pause. 
pause and step back and reaction and things like that. But I was noticing that I, in doing that, I wasn't reading it with as much kindness. Anymore. I've been shocked by my thoughts sometimes or my feelings. And not because I'm a kind person in my actions, but sometimes my thoughts are just these sniper thoughts. Yeah. And so what I do is I do imperfections all the time. I have them on something that's around the earth, and I just go through them with myself. I only do six of them because it's a little bit different practice. But I, so I think of generosity, and I think I just stop for a minute. I think of bringing generosity to myself. That it's hard. It's here. I try so hard in my practice, and it is hard. And to be kind to myself with that one. That yes, I wasn't pleased with that thought, but you know, I'm learning. And then I think of patience, and I think it's okay. It's it's taking a long time. Uh, you know, a practice takes time. It takes patience. It takes reflections. And so, for me to be patient with myself and not be pushing like I want to be just the way I want to be now, and then I go through. Um, joyful effort and persistence of, you know, may I be persistent and keep trying, it's going to take time, it has to take time, this has come out of lots of different things, and then going on to ethical ethical conduct, which are thinking of, you know, may I bring kindness to this, it, yes, it wasn't the way I want to think or want to feel, and then um, concentration, mindfulness of, yeah, I'm getting more mindful, and I am learning to mm -hmm. see these, and as I continue my practice and my meditation practice, it will get less, and then wisdom, um, realizing emptiness to see that, you know, that this comes out of other things, and it, and, and somehow by doing that, it brings uh, tremendous kindness, and also brings stepping back out of it, so I'm not in, in the thought, or in the second, or the yeah. judgment, and it, and it, over, the, I've been doing it for a couple of months. It's made a big difference. Mm -hmm. So, and I think, thank you very much, because I, I think that the, the 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 really important thread that goes through all of them is growing confidence. You know that I can do this. There's something that I can do. I have this thought. I have this feeling. Uh, and not that it's bad or good, because out of the category of moral or immoral, it's just painful to have that kind of thought. So I'd like to have less of those thoughts because they're painful to have. I'd love to have a tolerant and spacious mind that greeted everything as a friend. Thank you very, very much. Listen, it's after 11, so we have to leave, but I want to tell you two things. Uh, you can turn this off in uh, two things for posterity. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.